This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Another episode of Keeping Carlson Fancy Hockey Podcast, the best fancy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys on Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I am your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and I'm very excited for another. Okay, it's not the Brian. What is this? It's not the summer series, but it's not the regular season, the pl- the spring series of the Keeping Carlson Fancy Hockey Podcast. Where, where are we right now? It's the spring series featuring the audio almanac epilogue where we are going over projections we got right, but on this episode, we're going over ones we got wrong. To, uh, to like, we're honest. We're accountable. We're trying to make this work for everyone. Uh, so we'll continue. This is part two of our almanac almanac epilogue coming this episode. You know, Elon. Everyone's like so busy. Like I've been working really hard on the show today. Everyone's busy talking about Game of Thrones. Well, you know what? Let's talk about the game of zones. I'm talking neutral, defensive, offensive, and the most important one, fan. Fan zone. Fan, you know, some marinas have a fan zone so where the mascot hangs out. You get your your picture with your face in a cardboard cutout of like the team picture. Brian, are you drunk? Like, what is happening right now? First of all, okay, yeah, yes, we're going to talk about almanac stuff in a bit. There might be someone. This is their first episode, and you're saying like this is the almanac epilogue part two. People are like, what the heck is this guy saying? But yeah, we uh, did some projections last year, and we're going to do a series of episodes. We started the last episode where we're looking at what we got right, what we got wrong, and trying to figure out what we can learn before we make our new projections next season. Before we get to all the almanac talk, though, we are going to talk a bit about the NHL playoffs, which are still going. We've got three teams left as of now recording on monday night uh we'll talk a little bit about the world hockey championships brian will scoff at me as i try to mine for some fantasy impacts on what's happening there uh before everything why don't we mention that we are presented by dauberhockey.com the top fantasy hockey website out there they're updating themselves all the time just like us you know to be good at fantasy hockey you gotta be paying attention all season long listen to keeping carlson helps going to dauberhockey.com helps and aside from all the great articles keeping you up to date on everything the daily ramblings i always love many of them are written by cam robinson one of our favorite prospect experts and we're definitely going to be getting him soon so for those of you listening and thinking oh guys come on start talking about the draft we'll get to the prospects don't you worry we're going to get to that but yeah dauber hockey's got all those articles plus you got the tools frozen tools it's amazing check it out dauber hockey we're very proud to to be able to say that we are presented by them. So, Brian, okay, let's start with some playoff talk. The thing is, as the playoffs go on, you know, at the start, like, 
there were 16 teams and there was a lot for us to talk about all the players were doing well it was really fun to discuss if what they're doing in the playoffs are going to have an impact for next season now we're down to i guess four teams to discuss but these are teams we've already been discussing for the past few weeks so i don't know if there's any new ground to tread like the bruins are moving forward right the canes had a great run but it's over they got swept by the bruins and in fact brian help help me figure this out okay the islanders swept pittsburgh then Carolina swept the Islanders, and then Boston swept Carolina. So does that mean that Boston is like a thousand times better than the Penguins? Like how much better is a team that swept the team that swept the team that swept the team that beat the Pittsburgh Penguins? There's probably some very complicated math you could do to get an answer that's absolutely wrong. All it means, like it's sort of poetic, right? Like I feel like Pittsburgh felt really good when the Islanders got swept. You know, now they know our pain and the Islanders were really happy to see Carolina get swept. It would really be something to see Boston get swept and see see the sweep effect go all the way to the end. Although it seems unlikely, especially now that Boston gets to be the rested team. Like playing against, you know, San Jose's played a lot of hockey, St. Louis a fair amount too. Um, so I am a, I, I like Boston's chances. Elon, you must be happy. Your Sharks bet from the preseason is still alive against all odds. Do you have like a direct line to the NHL officiating uh, office? <laughs> I mean, Brian, I'm not that happy because now they're down three games to two. I feel like of the three remaining teams, they now have the least chance. Definitely a cold take saying that you like the Bruins at this point. Of course, <laughs> they're looking really good. And I think an even colder take to say you think they're at least not going to get swept. I agree with you there. These <laughs> I last think, two- yeah, I think the coldest take is actually me mentioning like I, any shark fan who's listening, like who got mad about the opinion. That was just a joke. I, I The sharks have earned their way to where they are. I'm not one of those. Like we have, uh, I know Kevin, one of our patrons, and I think Victor also. Uh, we have some Sharks fans in our in our Facebook group who are, are are stating their case very well. Oh yeah, John also. Uh, like how you know the Sharks? Maybe there's been a couple calls go their way, but uh, at the same time, things you know things don't just happen because you get a couple calls going your way. So I, I want everyone to know I'm on Team Sharks. I'm also on Team NHL needs to fix the the whole thing. But also, come on, let's just let's just have some fun, you know? Okay. Well, apparently, okay. John's been telling me that the Blues got calls going their way in the last couple of games. <laughs> Anyways, I'm worried about the Sharks right now. This is getting ahead of what we're about to talk about the Bruins. Uh, but yeah, apparently Carlson, Hurdle, and Pavelski are all injured and might not play in the next game. So that's definitely something to watch. Even if they do play, you know, how great are they going to be? Like Carlson was sitting on the bench for, at the end of, I think it was the, the la- not the last game, but the game before, game four. So I don't know. I'm, I'm worried about my Sharks bet, Brian. I don't think I'm going to be cashing in this year, but I still got hope. You never know. They just got to win two games against St. Louis, four games against the Bruins, and I'm a rich, rich man. But okay. Uh, Speaking of the Boston Bruins, who swept the Carolina Hurricanes, I think we've said all there is to say about the Hurricanes at this point uh, throughout the playoffs. What a great run. I'm really excited for them next season. Obviously, a big question marks like what who's going to be their goalie first of all are they going to resign Morazic or McElhenney are they going to go with someone completely new uh, it was cool to see Svechnikov getting into the top six even playing with Aho he didn't do much with it but maybe that's more uh, just a compliment to Tuka Rask who was insane in that playoff series and in fact Tuka Rask a guy who Brian still okay so I asked you I think after he did really well in the previous round and I said does this now make you like Tuka Rask a little bit better in drafts next year and he said nah he's still like a pile guy which uh, is a saying we've been using for we, there's like a whole bunch of goalies where it's really hard to differentiate between them and you have rask in that group uh like now that rask has had another great series does this convince you at all that maybe he's a more reliable fantasy option for next season for, i don't know like halak's on the bench right so you gotta think they they love to go rask 
They do, and they should. He's had a fantastic postseason. It has not changed my mind about who Tuka Rask is. What, if anything, it does for me, it solidifies that Boston is going to look to what helped him be successful in these playoffs, and they're going to try and draw a line of correlation here between a 942 save percentage in the playoffs and his fewest regular season games played since uh, you got to go all the way back to 2011, 2012, his third year in the league. And of course, I'm not really counting like I'm counting a pro rated uh, the season where the lockout shortened how many games played when Rask still started uh, 34 of the 48 so if anything I think that Rask playing this well in the playoffs gives Boston you know that extra nudge and be like hey that worked that regular season situation so maybe we'll get back to that and I don't think it's going to be a, a case where if they want to ride Tuka Rask, they'll actually be able to. I think he's going to, you know, do his Tuka Rask regular season thing. Remember, he's he's like a nine fourteen goalie over the last four years, nine twelve this most recent season. So yeah, I will say this until I'm blue in the face that Tuka Rask is uh, having a whale of a playoffs, but it doesn't prove that he is back to his uh, nine twenty nine nine thirty ways. Right. A whale. Oh, Brian, they beat the Hurricanes, not the Whalers. Let's let's get it right here. They, they Having moved. a hurricane of a season. <laughs> they were the Whalers at one point. Uh, yeah. So one other player maybe I could bring up on Boston who we haven't really discussed in a while is David Krejci. I don't know. Did we even talk about him at the end of the season? This guy had an insane season overall. I know we brought him up at some points. Like I remember he was a free agent for you in tier one of a couple Sweden at one point. And you picked him up and I was like begging you not to drop him. I forget if you did or not. I don't know if you ended the season with David Krejci. He ended the season with 73 points in 81 games, which was which was his best season in like a long time like back in 2015-16 he had 63 points in 72 so that's around the same pace crazy's having a great playoffs also 14 points in 17 games this guy he's not young but just like a lot of players in the nhl he seems to be you know coming into his own and having career years like late in his career so has this convinced you do you think obviously we'll talk about it a lot when we get into our you know, second annual NHL audio almanac where we'll be discussing every player and coming up with projections. But just a quick take right now. Do you think you're going to be projecting Krejci to be a 70 point guy once again? Or do you think that there's room for him to regress? So David Krejci has always been one of the the most underappreciated players, both in Boston and in the league and in fantasy. He's always been available at times he shouldn't have been. And I think he's probably on waiver wires a lot this year, including Cupful Tier 1 Sweden, just because, yeah, he's not quite a top line power play guy. He's not playing with Bergeron, Pasternak, or Marshan most of the time. So uh, who is this guy and why should I care about him? Well, it's because he's been like no worse than a 55-point guy for his entire career, which has now spent 11 seasons. And we sort of thought he'd settle in the 55-60 point range. Uh, This year, he did better than that. Like you said, Elon, 73 points in 81 games. And to be honest, I'm looking uh, looking through his numbers and I'm not seeing anything wild there. Um, His IPP was a little high, so I I don't think 74 points is, uh, is a pace we can count on next year. But I think 65 and that might even be low, uh, is perfectly reasonable. And one thing that's helped him this year is that he actually had like some really legit, like he's been, again, the guy who doesn't play on the top line with Krejci, Pasternak, and Marchand. So um, in the past, he has not had necessarily the most consistent line mates in terms of like who he actually plays with from night to night. And also he doesn't have the most consistently performing line mates in that uh, they can be a lot of hit or miss guys. But this year he had Jake DeBrusque by his side for a lot of the season, uh, almost the entire thing. 
And I think that helps a lot. He did play a little bit with Pasternak. That helped him uh, pad his totals a little bit too. But I, I think that's a big part of this. So uh, so I, I wouldn't expect that to change for next year. So yeah, I still like him a lot as a guy who probably should be drafted, but probably won't be in a lot of leagues. And he'll just be like an early waiver wire pickup. Yeah, another reason why he got all those points was there was that stretch where Pasternak was injured, and I believe it was Krejci on the top power play, or there was time also when Bergeron missed time. Like, there were many times throughout the season where Krejci was playing with the big guys, either at even strength or on the power play. And yeah, so who knows if that'll happen again next year. But yeah, he's like a really reliable guy either way. I'll just clarify, rarely at even strength was he playing with these guys. Yeah, he did get to step up on the power play every so often, but uh, usually just if there was an injury. The rest of the time, he was not... Uh, like he, he maybe played a com- combination of 10 games where he saw any kind of substantial time with one of the big three other guys. Yeah. What a guy. Okay. So great season for him. He's having a great playoffs. Let's see if he could take it through to the cup. Okay. Uh, in the West, the Blues destroyed the Sharks yesterday to take the 3 2 series lead. Like we said, uh, lots of talk about officiating, starting with that Meyer hand pass. And you've already kind of addressed it, Brian. So we could go past that. Uh, the guy I want to talk about right now is on the Sharks first. Brian, like Martin Jones, ugh, he's so not good. <laughs> like I, I haven't watched all the games. The games I've watched, he doesn't look like so bad in the net. Like some of the goals he lets in don't seem like they're his fault. But also there's a lot of goals that don't look great. And like overall, his numbers are just not good at all. Right now, he has an 880 save percentage in the five games versus St. Louis. This is after, right after the second round when San Jose beat Colorado and Martin Jones was like fine. He had a 916 save percentage in that series, which is like good, not amazing, not Tuka Rask level, but good enough to the you know got them the win then there was a tweet by the hockey news that said martin jones's early playoff performance was abysmal but the sharks netminder has turned it around and is silencing critics with each passing game and i retweeted it saying i don't know because brian you and i have been critics of martin jones for a while now i was like i don't feel silenced like yeah he had a decent series a 916 save percentage but he was terrible in the previous series versus vegas in 896 save percentage in the regular season which is bad and now like i'm saying he's even worse in this round versus st louis when the sharks need a goalie to step up it's so frustrating that a team could go out get Carlson they trade for Gustav Nyquist at the trade deadline you know they thought they had built themselves a winning team and it seems almost like uh, like they got shut out by Bennington yesterday so I'm not gonna put all the blame on Martin Jones but I do feel like they really missed the boat by not having a better goalie and like at this point like how much blame are we gonna give if St. Louis beats San Jose tomorrow the series ends how much of the blame goes to Martin Jones just not being able to cut it in net It's amazing to me that the Sharks have made it this far in the playoffs in spite of Martin Jones. Like, yeah, he had a few good games here and there, and that brought these headlines out when, you know, especially when a team, there's fewer and fewer teams available round to round. And then when one team is moving through, everybody tries to, you know, uh, dig and peel back and find all these narratives that don't really exist. They're very contrived. And one of those contrived narratives has been for the Sharks that, Martin Jones, actually a good goalie, finally redeeming himself. We know this isn't true. If you've been listening to Keeping Carlson, you know this isn't true. So so don't buy into any of that business. Um, the 5 nothing loss, I think that one was on San Jose as a team more than Jones. Um, but my counterpoint would be, and this isn't fair to Martin Jones, but you know, if you're going to blow enough games, if, if your team is going to make it this far in spite of you, uh, you got to steal a couple too. And, and he has... 
along the way. He's had a couple sterling outings. Uh, and it's not fair to say that Martin Jones owes the team in front of him some help. But but it would have been a good way for him to validate the headlines talking about how great he is, where uh, his team gets outplayed and he really saves their bacon in a crucial game. That's just not what you're getting uh, reliably from Martin Jones. And it'll be really interesting to understand what the Sharks' plan is for uh, goaltending in the offseason because uh, most of us remember that Martin Jones, if I haven't said enough on the show, is locked down for another five seasons after this one at just under $6 million. If I'm the Sharks, I'm doing everything I can to try and get out from under that contract. It was a bad contract when it was signed. It will remain a bad contract until it expires. We'll see. He actually has a modified no-trade clause also. That's going to make things very hard, uh, where he submits a three-team trade list. So, uh, you know, he could say uh, he could just pick three teams with no cap space, right? And the Sharks have have no way that they can uh, get him off their books. So it's unfortunate for the Sharks because they have such a good team. And, of course, we have a lot of movement probably coming in the offseason. So we'll have to see if they can still field a, a team that can keep its window open. But the fact that he's their goalie while their window is open is kind of cruel. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they would appreciate, like you say, if they could get rid of Martin Jones, maybe go after a Robin Leonard or someone in the offseason for similar money, maybe less term. Like, I don't know. It's not a great situation. Good luck to them trying to offload that contract. That's a lot of term and a lot of money for a goalie that's not performing. Like, I feel like no matter what the Sharks do in the offseason, it's going to be hard for me to place my annual bet on a cup winner on the Sharks again, just because I was so excited about them getting Carlson. But I didn't consider the fact that they would have to get four rounds of Martin Jones not blowing it. And they got through two. Like you said, he had a couple Sterling games. It's like literally a couple games, I think, against Colorado where he was decent. And uh, yeah, generally the Sharks have to score like three or four goals if they want to win a game in this playoffs. Uh, Then over on St. Louis, who is looking pretty good right now to make it to the Cup Finals, though I was wrong about Vegas in the first round when they were up three games to two. Um, I was actually planning on bringing up Vladimir Tarasenko uh, like a couple of weeks ago, like before this round started, when we finished our last episode, I started thinking about what we'll talk about next because uh, he only had six points through his first 14 playoff games. It looked like Tarasenko was really disappointing his team and they were like, you know, lucky to get through Not lucky. Like, you know, other players were stepping up, but like Tarasenko was supposed to be the main guy on the team. But hey, now he's really stepped up in this series against the Sharks. He has a point in every game of the series, including one goal and two assists yesterday. Of course, maybe that's more to say about Martin Jones making it easy for someone like Tarasenko to break out of a slump. But okay, enough about him. Uh, Overall in the season, Tarasenko had 68 points in 76 games. That's a 73-point pace. Uh, I know that there have been times when I thought maybe Tarasenko was primed to jump and become that point-per-game superstar. It hasn't happened. And Brian, you were right all along so far, saying that it wasn't going to happen. Is that what you're going to continue to say going to next season? Are these playoffs convincing you one way or the other that Tarasenko is anything aside from like a 75-point player? Like most players that were 75-point players going into last season went up because there were so many more goals scored in the NHL, but Tarasenko even had a little bit of a dip. Yeah, so I'm thinking he's still a 75-point player, tried and true, don't expect more. Uh, It's equally likely that he's going to give you a little more or a little less. So I'm holding steady that he is going to be a hold steady kind of guy. I know he really blew it for like the first third of this season, but so did all of St. Louis. Then he got going again. And anyone talking about how he disappeared in the playoffs, it wasn't for long right? Like he's okay. You look at his numbers on the whole and you wouldn't know he disappeared for any time. And also, uh, I don't know if you, you saw this stat, Elon, that was, uh, that came across our Twitter timeline at some point. Um, Vladimir Tarasenko 
since 2014 is second to only Alex Ovechkin in goals scored. And before you say, well, like it's a matter of opportunity and how many games he plays, uh, the other guys on the leaderboard, so Ovechkin has played 70 games, has 34 goals. Tarasenko has 29 goals in 61 games. Kucherov has the same number of goals in 65 games. Then you've got Malkin and Crosby with fewer goals in like 20 more games played. So Tarasenko has been an excellent playoff performer uh, for several years. So anyone trying to build a narrative that uh, Tarasenko disappears in the playoffs, it ain't true. No, I, I definitely wasn't trying to say that. I was just looking at these first couple of rounds, but he's totally redeemed himself, Dumb and Dumber style. Uh, so, Brian, going into next season, let's say you're on the draft board and you want to pick a St. Louis Blues forward. Is Tarasenko still the number one guy to draft? He has been for years, including this past season. I'm sure in all leagues, Tarasenko was drafted ahead of like Ryan O'Reilly, but Ryan O'Reilly had 77 points on the season, while Tarasenko, like I said, had that 73-point pace. Still, I guess that means I'd probably want Tarasenko because he has winger eligibility. Is Tarasenko still the first Blues forward that you draft next season? He is. He's the most reliable, for sure. Um, So yeah, Tarasenko is still the king of the Blues if you're drafting your fantasy team. Ryan O'Reilly might not be so far behind, like might not be more than a round or two behind, uh, but in my books, he's still behind. Um, And then, Elon, like, like, let's remove the forward parameter and just say, who's the first St. Louis Blue you're going to draft? Do you think perhaps Jordan Binnington gets drafted ahead of Vladimir Tarasenko? Well, that's so league dependent, right? Like, obviously, yeah. it depends how viable goalies are in the league. I thought you were going to say Alex Petrangelo, because defense is always so hard to find. And Petrangelo's having himself an amazing playoffs. So I feel like he's the guy that I think would be an interesting conversation. I probably wouldn't take him ahead of Tarasenko, but I might take Petrangelo like soon after in that same round, maybe where Ryan O'Reilly is getting drafted. As far as Jordan Binnington, like, man, who knows with goalies? Like, he was a nobody. Like, we, he wasn't even on the team like a, a year ago. And now here he is. We had a question from Adam in our chat here. Thanks, Adam, for joining us for the live show. Uh, like, asking, is he a top 10 goalie to draft for next year? And I feel like my gut says probably not. If, if someone's going to use one of their top goalie picks to take Jordan Binnington, I'd rather let them take the chance just because there's not a proven track record. We've seen goalies who are young and new to the league, like, have a hot stretch and then cool down. Like, Connor Hellebuck, remember, a couple seasons ago was amazing. Then this past season, not so great. So I don't know. I'd probably take a more seemingly reliable option at the same time. St. Louis Blues seem like a good team. Then on the other other hand, Jake Allen is still there. And if Bennington struggles, yeah. who knows? I don't know. Like, I'm just, no. I'm not saying that I would draft Jake not Allen. A threat. Like, it's more if Jordan Bennington collapses entirely, then maybe Jake Allen can get a few games in. And, and who's to say Jake Allen won't collapse entirely himself? Yeah. And then they have Huso who's supposed to be an up-and-coming goalie. Like, I don't know. I wouldn't take Bennington that high, but he could end up being a great draft pick. But with goalies, you're rolling the dice. And I think with him, you're rolling the dice more than others. You know, like a Braden Holtby, who, you know, is, hasn't been lights out forever, but I'd still take a guy like Holtby over Bennington because he's on a good team and he seems reliable and the for sure starter, maybe like a Marc-Andre Fleury. You, you know, there's sort of like a few names. I don't know if there's 10 of them. I'd have to think it through. And we'll get into it all, of course, when we record our Almanac because we'll be ranking every single goalie and putting them into tiers as we go through. That was a really fun exercise we did last year. Our Almanac, Elon, we don't have a sponsor again this week. Can our Almanac presale be our sponsor? Sure. So uh, let's just take a second before we get into talking about the World Hockey Championships to thank a sponsor for this week's episode, which are our friends over at Keeping Carlson, who have released presale for, like I said, the second annual 
the the first time we did this last year, that was the world's first ever NHL audio almanac. You know, you go to the drugstore or whatever, and you see all these magazines where you could like flip through each team and see uh, projections for all the different players and a quick breakdown of all the top players. And then, you know, in the more modern times, people like Dauber Hockey and others make PDF guides where you can get these things. Well, we went to the next step and we recorded an audio version of this where we went through each chapter of the audiobook was a different team and we went through every single fantasy relevant player that we could think of on that team it was usually about 40 minutes per team and we came with projections for every player and brian really dug into the advanced stats and all of the pdos and the ipps and the and the whatevers to figure out if he thought the players would do better or worse and we discussed them all it was a lot of fun and you could get a pre-sale order for that if you go to keepingcarlson.com slash almanac. If you're a patron, you get a 10% discount. At some point, we're going to raise the price. But for now, you can get it for the early bird price of, what do we have it at, Brian? Like $20 or $18 for patrons. And this is like, you know, Brian and I are going to kill ourselves to make this thing. And we'd love for you to uh, support us early. Uh, so keepingcarlson.com slash almanac. And we promise it'll be really good when it comes out uh, late August, early September. Yeah. Now's where I usually have like an extra part. And if you buy the almanac now, uh, you just get to rest easy knowing that we'll just send you an email. When, once it's released, you'll be the first one to get it. Or, and, or uh, before, earlier, because we'll send you the recording schedule and you'll be able to join us live for all of the almanac recordings. A lot of perks of getting in early. So uh, check it out. And if, if you don't want to, we'll tell you about it again next week and the following weekend forever until uh, we can get someone to pay us to be a real sponsor. So, okay, Brian, next, let's talk about the World Hockey Championships going on. The IIHF Championships are going on right now. I thought it'd be fun to look at the scoring leaders, see if we could glean any fantasy impact. Brian, I know you're scoffing at me already saying, Elon's so foolish. How can you draw any conclusion from a small sample size of games against varied competition? Like, you know, you have games against, you know, 10 nothing games against Germany or I don't even know, like all these weird countries that you don't think of that have good hockey players. I don't know why I said Germany first. They have Olaf Kolzig. And isn't there like a good German player right now? Wait, where's Dreisaitl from? Is he German? Yeah. And uh, Marco Sturm was also German. Denmark. I don't know. There's weird. He's still German. So <laughs> there's good reasons to not care about what's going on, though. I will say, Brian, I took a look at last year's leaderboard for the IIHF World Hockey Championships, and there were some interesting names there. Like, let me tell you the top 10. There was Patrick Kane, 20 points in 10 games. Sebastian Ajo had 19 points in eight games, the second highest in the tournament. This is before Ajo had that huge breakout this season. I feel like there's something to be said for if someone is going to come and play against NHLers in this tournament and be one of the best in the tournament in terms of total points, that's maybe a hint that they're ready to also have a similar breakout in the NHL. And Sebastian Ajo really did it. Third was Connor McDavid. Fourth was Ricard Raquel, who turned out, I don't know, it's so hard with him. I feel like he's like an outlier because Anaheim was so crazy and he was injured and whatever. Okay, uh, Tara Vinen was next and we saw how well he did this season playing with uh, Ajo at times. Uh, then, okay, then tied at 11 points in eight games or so was Cam Atkinson, Mika Zibanejad, and Miko Rantanen, all people who dominated that tournament and then were dominating... <laughs> in fantasy and in the NHL the next season. So I feel like there were names last year that did really well and then turned out to do really well in the NHL. Of course, uh, you could probably say counterpoints and say there was the exact opposite thing that also happened, but whatever. Brian, what do you think? Can I talk a little bit about who the current leaders are this season or do you think it's not even worth our time? I mean, please do. You've really built it up as to being like, this is the crystal ball. This is the the secret untapped source of future knowledge. So yeah, tell me, who is leading in the uh, world championship scoring so far this year. Yeah, the uh, crystal ball Huey. 
Here it is. So this is as of this morning when I was prepping. So there were some games today. Kucherov is leading the tournament. So I guess Tampa's loss was uh, Russia's. I don't, I don't I think I have that right, right? Kucherov's from Russia. Russia's gain because they got Kucherov to come in and dominate the tournament. Someone will correct me if I'm wrong about that. Ah, oh, uh, Kucherov, that sounds like a Russian name. Okay, uh, second place right now, William Nylander, 13 points in five games. Holy cow. And we'll talk about him in a sec. Uh, Michael Frolik is next. That's probably not someone we'll have to worry about too much. We've seen a big sample size out of him. To me, it's more like the young players who are doing stuff that we haven't seen yet. That's okay. So next is Jacob Voracek. Next, Anthony Mantha, 11 points in five games. Nikita Gusev, someone who I want to bring up, uh, 10 points in six games. Uh, Philip Hironik has nine points in six games. This is a guy on Detroit who I'm really high on for next season. Uh, Alex Dabrinkit, eight points in six games. Okay, so those are the names of the top players. There's also a guy named Dominic Kubalik who has nine points in six games, which is good for eighth overall uh, as of this morning. And I had no idea who this guy is. Turns out he's a 23-year-old Czech left wing. His rights are owned by the Blackhawks. So, Brian, what do you think? What are the odds that we will mention the name Dominic Kubalik at some point next season? Like, what do you think the uh, percentage chance is? If we're trying to be like hockey hipsters, 10 out of 10. <laughs> if not, I, I mean, I don't even know uh, what it's going to take for him to play in North America. Yeah, we don't know anything. Do I don't you? want to talk about him. I want You know who I want to talk <laughs> about? I want to talk about William Nylander, okay? Because I've been seeing lots of tweets showing gifts of Nylander's points and amazing goals in the tournament, and people are making all these snarky comments, being like, I guess he can't backtrack after all. Or like, wow, turns out if you put Nylander with good players, he could be really good. And who would have thought? <laughs> anyway, so lots of tweets, like smart Alec tweets, saying how the Leafs are dumb, and Nylander's actually really good, and they're just not using him right. But anyway, the bottom line is, are you reading anything into Nylander's great performance for Sweden so far? Like he had only 27 points in 54 games after he signed last season, but he may turn out to be a draft steal next season if this tournament is any indication of what he's capable of. He was a free agent steal this year for a lot of people. So long as you picked him up at just the right time or you could like you could have afforded to hold him while his game got up to speed because, yeah, he came back and it was a lot of garbage. And I think a lot of what you're seeing uh, on Twitter, like with the gifts of Nylander doing well. And then everyone's saying, Oh, I guess he can like that. That's in response to all the, you know, those brave think pieces that were saying, William Nylander wasn't worth it. Uh, sitting at the season throughout his game. The Leafs should have never uh, worked with an ego like him. Uh, and just trying to draw all sorts of uh, conclusions from what was essentially like, a 19-game cold streak. I, I guess like it could go a little longer, depending on how you want to measure it. Um, and he did finish the season a little cold as well. But that's all it was. Like This is a guy who came in in the middle of the season, didn't get good deployment right away, uh, had to figure out where he fit in with the team. Like there, There's a big learning curve from coming back from nothing to something. Like He was practicing with a university team or something while he was waiting for his contract to be worked out. Um, this is a guy who had 23 points in 30 games uh, during a, like a two-month stretch, and this was after everybody had written him off. Uh, I don't think that he is going to be anything but great next year. We thought okay. he was a 65-70 point guy. He still is, regardless of, of in extenuating circumstances, not having the strongest season. That's it. I think everybody, all these, all these tweets, it's very reactive. It's just there was a lot of uh, garbage being heaped upon William Nylander because of his situation. A lot of people like to pile on a holdout 
who just wants to get market value for his skills, which is totally fine with me. Okay. I think that that's a very good take. Plus, don't forget the Leafs have some cap issues they're going to have to figure out over the summer. So maybe some top six spots will open up. So Nylander could, like, let's say, start next season and play the whole season playing on a line with Austin Matthews. And yeah, I think that I'm with you. I feel like if he's falling in my draft and people are drafting like 60 point guys and Nylander's still available, it seems like a real steal. And you're saying maybe even 65, 70. So yeah, and we're seeing from this tournament, this is a super talented player and he just needs to be put in the right situation. And this guy's going to be capable of producing. Uh, we already gushed about Anthony Mantha's 15 points in his final eight games at the end of the regular seasons. So I don't know how much more we could really say about him, uh, but this tournament is showing him shine even more. He led Team Canada in points as of this morning. I know Canada had a 5 nothing win today, so I haven't checked the update there. But yeah, Mantha overall, he had a 59-point pace last season. I think we may be looking at someone who's going to join that 70-point club next season. Like Gustav Nyquist was on that pace on Detroit, or even better, playing with Larkin all year. We already discussed it. He's gone. Mantha's going to be the guy playing with Larkin on the top line, on the top power play. He's killing it in this tournament, just making me more and more excited about Anthony freaking Mantha. We're excited about him. Yeah, we, we already told you how excited we were about him over the last... I think out of our most recent six episodes, we've probably been telling you all about him for at least four of them. So by now, you should know. Anthony Mantha should be on your draft list going into next season. Are you going to put him at 70 points in the Almanac? What's your gut feeling right now? Uh, Gut feeling would be more in the neighborhood of 60. And uh, I I think it would be a lot to, to hope for a lot more. Although if he does get to play with Dylan Larkin for a whole season, that's a really great place to be. I'm going to put him for 70. I'm, I'm saying it unless I unless you give me really good reasons not to. I have a feeling I'm putting him at 70. Uh, and since I'm on Detroit and I did mention Philip Peronik also having a really good tournament. I know, you, Brian, you poo-pooed me saying this a couple of times. But just to recap, Mantha, Heronik, Larkin, they're all having good tournaments. Athanasiu and Bertuzzi had strong ends to the season. Zadina's coming up. I'm really excited to see what the Red Wings can do next season. I think this team is going to score some goals. Uh, But we don't have to talk about that. Let's talk about one more player from that list that I gave you, Nikita Gusev. So what's going on with Nikita Gusev? He signed a one-year contract with the Golden Knights back on April 14th. He didn't end up playing for the Golden Knights in that series against San Jose. But like, this means he's going to be in the NHL next season, right? Like, am I understanding this correctly? I think you're right, Elon. It, It looks as he signed the contract, joined the Golden Knights for the playoffs, and that's the end of the contract, right? So right now he's an RFA. Adam in the chat pointing out that he has arbitration rights as part of that. Uh, but Adam is also confident they'll sign him. And that seems to be the whole intent here, right? He wasn't going to sign with them to like hang out with them for a couple weeks while during their playoff run and then say, okay, thanks for the memories. I'm going to go back to Russia and play with another team. If he does play, it's very exciting. This does look like a time uh, where we're getting a fully formed hockey player just get parachuted in to the NHL and we'll get to watch him do his thing. Uh, like, yes, I have seen the comparisons to Panarin and to Dadanov and thinking that uh, he can have that kind of immediate impact. The only thing standing in his way is the six players ahead of him on the Vegas Golden Knights depth chart, right? This is a team that has two top lines, essentially. So even if Nikita Gusev essentially fits on a on a second line, it's actually the Golden Knights' third line. You know, you look at him and Alex Tuck. These are guys who would be in a team's top six for sure for so many teams in the NHL. But in Vegas, it's a crowded depth chart. So we'll see exactly where he can push himself through training camp. If he does get great deployment, 
Very excited to see what he'll do. But uh, the underlying concern is that if Gusev does sign with the Golden Knights, as is, as is expected, he might not get a chance to, you know, show Panarin or Dadanov like production in his first season because he won't get their deployment. Well, I don't know, Brian. I fear that this is going to mess us up in our almanac. A lot like when Mike Hoffman went to Florida. And then we were all, we had no idea how to then decide, okay, who's going to be playing with who? Who's going to get on the top power play? Like there's too many players. And I feel like on one hand, you could say, sure, Nikita Gusev might not have the opportunity because the Golden Knights already have two lines. Or maybe we should be going with, okay, bump down Riley Smith's fantasy value because Gusev's going to take his spot on the Marcheseau line, right? Like it's so hard to know what's going to happen. But if we're talking about a player who, by the way, has been well over a point per game for Scott St. Petersburg in the KHL for the past three seasons. You know, this is a guy who was producing the KHL just like Panarin and Dadanov, like you said. And if you have a Panarin available on your team, I feel like you're not going to play him on the third line. So it's going to be really hard to predict. Like on one hand, it seems weird that they would shake up those lines. But again, they got bumped in the first round. So who knows? Maybe they'll try something different. Side note to all this, and obviously we'll get into this more in the Almanac, but I feel like this we're going to get messed up. I feel like I'm going to get a bunch of Vegas projections wrong because I'm going to be like, okay, I'm going to give Riley Smith like 10 fewer points than I normally would because I'm worried about Gusev taking a spot then watch it not even happen. But yeah, my side note is right now I have Vegas as my front runner to make my annual $50 bet on who's going to win the Stanley Cup for next season. Like I'm loving the Vegas Golden Knights right now. They're basically the same team as this year, which looked so good. I was really surprised they didn't make it past the first round. Obviously, a big major penalty was a part of that. Uh, but yeah, they're the same team. But you add Gusev, you add maybe Cody Glass. Plus, there's this defenseman, Nicholas Hag, who's supposed to be like a really good top pairing, big minute defenseman, according to Dauber Prospects, who might be ready to join the team next year. And I feel like they could use like one more big minute defenseman along with Nate Schmidt. And then you have Shea Theater. I don't know. Like this whole team just looks so, so good. The whole season of Mark Stone. Like I'm really high on the Vegas Golden Knights for next season, and it'll be really fun to try to project how everyone will do with Nikita Gusev in the picture. Uh, okay, so Brian, that's all I've got from the playoffs and from the World Hockey Championship. Do you have anything you want to add before we get into our analysis of our Almanac projections from last season? Well, speaking of the Golden Knights, one player whose deployment in the IIHF World Championships caught my eye is Dylan Strom, who was playing with Mark Stone and Jonathan Marchessault as their center. Uh, there's not a whole, like, and I was like, oh, this is an opportunity to see just how much he can do. Although, is it really? Because he's playing with two really fantastic players uh, who will help make him look good, even if he isn't, I'm sure. But I thought it was really interesting to see him getting that kind of deployment. As of uh, their most recent game, he's been, I think, back down on the fourth line, uh, playing with Tyson Jost and uh, Matthew Joseph or Adam Henrique. But anyway, it was just an interesting thought to see that Dylan Strom, ah, like is being put in a top six role on a team Canada that's pretty good. And of course, like it's the early rounds and they're playing some different competitions. There's a great chance to give guys opportunities to play in different places in the lineup. Uh, right now, between Marcia So and Stone is another guy uh, looking to redeem himself from a sort of up and down season in Pierre-Luc Dubois. So that'll uh, we'll see as we get towards the medal rounds and the more serious games. I'm curious to see what these guys can do in high pressure situations, quote unquote, high pressure. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know if you would say that Dylan Strom is trying to redeem himself. Like he had this amazing season. If anything, he needs to prove himself that he can do it again. It looks yeah. like he's got four points in 
five games. That's the latest I'm seeing at quanthockey.com for what it's worth. Yeah, Dylan Strobe's going to be a fun guy to project next season. Seemed like he was locked in on that Chicago top power play. And oh, I'm so excited. Brian, I, let's record the Almanac right now. I'm ready. But I guess we probably should wait till after July 1st and actually find out who's going to be on all of these teams. Uh, but okay, Brian, anything else before we get into our cupful analysis? Because for that, I'm just going to throw it to you. You're the one who did all the research with the help of Fantasy Ref. I have nothing else to talk about, Elon, so let's continue with our ongoing Almanac epilogue, which is where uh, we take a look at who we projected in the Almanac, right, who we got wrong, and figure out the reasons for that and try and learn some lessons along the way uh, so we don't make the same mistakes twice on the second edition uh, of the Audio Almanac, which again is available at keepingcarlson.com slash almanac. If you like this whole next segment, you will love the Almanac. No obligation. You just listen to this and enjoy. Okay, so last time we talked about a couple players that, uh, Elon, you and I were right about and other people were wrong compared to other projectors. And again, this is using data from Fantasy Ref. So this time around, let's talk about players that we were too low on. There were There's a group of five players that will take one at a time. These are players not only we were too low on, but every projector was too low on. And then after that, we're going to get to two players who uh, we were lower on than everybody else uh, and wronger than anyone else because of it. So uh, let's get started with one of the biggest surprises of 2018-19, and that is one Jacob Gensel. I've never seen him listed as Jacob anywhere. I'm assuming it's the name on his birth certificate. I don't know. Is it with a UB like Jacob Voracek, or is it going to be OB? Is it going to have a K? I guess if it's Jake Gensel with a K, it would be J-A-K-O-B. Well, it's not like Jacob with a C is shortened to J-A-C-E. That's true. So it's probably Jacob J-A-C-O-B. Anyways, Jacob Gensel had a <laughs> Jacob really... H. Gensel had that... a fantastic season. 76 points for Gensel in 18-19. And that blew a lot of projections out of the water. How did he get there? Uh, well, on the strength of 40 goals, 36 assists. Uh, Elon, you had him for 60 points. I had him for 59. The field of projectors had him for 59 points. So he outperformed all of our projections by 16, 17 points. How do you think he did it? Okay, so here are a couple of reasons, I think, for why Jake Gensel had such a great season. And by the way, I know I didn't get it right in the projection. I only said a measly 60 points. Like you said, he got 76. But I still feel like I did get it right because I picked him in my Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patriot Fantasy League team uh, very late or late enough that, you know, made me feel really smart afterwards when he was producing like a top round guy. And I ended up winning that league. By the way, Brian, I don't know if you were aware that I won my couple division. Anyway, so first of all, Patrick Hornfist was injured for a lot of the season. So I feel like Jake Gensel got a lot more power play opportunities than maybe we expected him to get. So I'm guessing you're going to say that he had some extra power play points that we weren't expecting. Maybe you'll tell me I'm wrong about that. Uh, the other thing is he played all season with Sidney Crosby. Did he do that also the season before? I feel like there was maybe some ups and downs and, and what have yous. I'm thinking of that guy that went to Buffalo that I've totally blanked on his name now. What's that? Connor Sherry. Sherry. Connor Sherry was there, I believe. And he was sort of taking turns playing with Crosby. But this season, it was like Gensel, Crosby, and someone else all season long. That someone else shifted around every week. But Jake Gensel seemed like a mainstay, stuck to Sidney Crosby, who had a great season himself. So it just makes sense that if you're going to play with him all the time at even strength and even get some power play opportunities, you're going to get close to a point per game. You're not 100% right there, Elon. Two years ago in 1718, Gensel played 
most of the time with Sidney Crosby. And when he wasn't with Crosby, he was playing with Phil Kessel. Although last year it was like straight up Crosby, all Crosby all the time. And you're right. That third piece was rotating between guys like Brian Rust and Dominic Simone. And you have to think that helped Jake Gensel to be playing that extra time with Sidney Crosby. He did also get some power play time and I'll get to that. But first, before we talk about his power play time, One reason we were projecting Jake Gensel for 60 points instead of the 76 he ended up with, that was due to the little hope we had that Gensel was going to get any substantial top power play time. Actually, I do want to start with the power play. So we were kind of right about that. Uh, Gensel's power play role did grow. He saw just more than a 45% share of Pittsburgh's power play minutes, thanks in small parts to both Hornquist falling out of favor in Pittsburgh and Malkin's injury towards the end of the season. But Gensel still only had 11 power play points on the year. That was one fewer than he had in 17-18. So obviously, Jake Gensel had to be a monster at 5-on-5 to get up to 76 points. And he was. Not an exaggeration. Get this, Elon. Only John Tavares had more goals than Jake Gensel at 5-on-5. Tavares had 33. Gensel had 31. The rest of the field trailed them. Gensel was also 10th in the entire NHL in five-on-five points scored with 57. That's within spitting distance of guys like Marner, Panarin, Crosby, Tavares. And he's also in the class of point, Marshawn, Bergeron, Stamkos, when you account for his time on ice and put his even strength scoring as a rate stat. So, like, this is fantastic. Gensel is an elite company in his five-on-five scoring last season. And a part of that is because... uh, he was he got a few more minutes a night than he did in his sophomore season. But another part of that is that he made the most of them. So there are two parts here to think about Gensel when we're thinking about what's he going to do next year. The first part is, was Jake Gensel's 18-19 five-on-five production sustainable? And I've got a very unsatisfying answer that says, maybe. Maybe he can sustain his five-on-five scoring, all these goals that he put in net at even strength. And this goes back to our projection from 1718 that we were closer to being right on when Gensel hype in fantasy drafts was sky high. Remember Gensel's rookie season in 16-17? He had a 68-point pace in 40 games played, but it came on the back of shooting 21% at five-on-five. And that shooting percentage regressed hard for Gensel as a sophomore in 17-18, leading to his massively disappointing follow-up season. But then in 2018-19, his shooting percentage popped back up to 17%. So we had a season of way too high shooting and a season of like looks average, but for Gensel, maybe that's low. And then last season, it was back up again. So over three NHL seasons, Gensel has scored 60 goals at five on five on 392 shots. That's a 15% shooting percentage. And you know what? That sounds reasonable. I'd like to have about 600 shots as a sample before feeling like I've got a full picture on a player's shooting percentage uh, level. Uh, So Gensel doesn't quite have that, but 15% sounds like about where he could land. And Even if Gensel's five-on-five shooting does regress a touch next year from the 17% to 15%, his odds of being a top power play guy also get better for next year. So maybe that helps wash out any shooting percentage regression that he's going to see, so long as it's not like a a ridiculous amount that he can't cope with. Jake Gensel, uh, trying to, to project where he'll end up on the power play next season, he was on the top unit 
for eight consecutive games towards the end of this past season. And that feels like it bodes well, especially with rumors of Kessel being traded in the air and Hornquist season having gone so poorly. Like, how do we see Patrick Hornquist finding his way back up to the top power play next year? So that's why I'm thinking that Jake Gensel can do this again next year. I think he can get 75 points again because whatever shooting percentage regression he sees will hopefully be made up for with another handful of power play points from seeing more time on the top unit. And whatever he does next year, I'm actually really rooting for him to be really successful because that would mark the end to the seesaw ride that Gensel's taken us on for the first three years of his career. I would love to see a couple years in a row of him doing the same thing so we can really start getting a sense of what to expect for the rest of his career. Yeah, I think I agree with you on pretty much everything. Yeah, if Kessel goes, Gensel gets on the top power play for sure. I feel like even if Hornquist wasn't so great at even strength, I think Pittsburgh likes using him in that, like, in front of the net role on the power play. And I don't think that they were doing poorly on the power play, so you could correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that Hornquist probably sticks on that top power play if nothing else changes. But either way, maybe Kessel's gone, so it doesn't even matter. There's an open spot for Gensel. I guess the other big question about Jake Gensel's success is he's like the type of guy, he's like the Rantanen, right? Like he's playing with Sidney Crosby, and Crosby had 100 points in 79 games last season. So I feel like probably when analyzing Gensel and trying to come up with whether or not he could do it again, it's going to be tied to whether we think Sidney Crosby can do it again and get another 100 points in 79 games. And he's Sidney Crosby. So I'd imagine probably yes, but at the same time, Crosby actually had 89 points the previous season, 89 points the season before that, 85 before that. Like, this is the first time that Crosby's gotten to 100 points since 2013-14. And it's not like he's been still a lot of games to injuries. Like, Crosby just hasn't been as good as he was last season. So I feel like for Gensel to get as many points at even strength, he's going to need his line mate that he plays with all the time. That's probably the main driver, not to take anything away from Jake Gensel, but obviously Sidney Crosby, Sidney Crosby. So... Yeah, that's the other thing that I'd like to hear. And we don't have to do it now. We can do it in the Almanac. But like, I'm going to be curious to know what your projection is for Sidney Crosby. And if you say he's going to say the same, then I think it makes sense to say that Gensel could also stay the same. You're right. Gensel, as Crosby goes, so does he. And I have enough faith that Sidney Crosby can at least perform close enough to last year's production uh, that it's not going to affect Jake Gensel terribly. And you've also got to allow for Jake Gensel himself uh, getting a little bit of growth in. Right himself, he's getting to be a better player with every year he plays, putting more shots on net, learning more, getting older, uh, moving towards the peak of his prime, which I don't think we've seen quite yet. He might be there this year, but I don't think he's been there yet. So yeah, Yeah. I have faith in the Jake Gensel, Sidney Crosby combo for another year. And the wonderful thing is that it didn't matter to them who that third guy was, right? They just kept rolling the whole way through. So if you had to bet right now, it's so crazy with Pittsburgh. Like just, it would be so nice for them to have a top line that lasts for more than two weeks. Like every, like, I guess that's what keeps us in business, right? Like every episode of Keeping Carlson, I know I could put in a talk about Dominic Simone or Zach Aston Reese or Brian Rust or whoever's on that top line. A, a couple seasons ago, I remember feeling really confident that Brian Rust was going to hold down that spot and be a decent fantasy guy. And he was good. Like he was a great free agent ad whenever he was on that line. If he had some injury issues at the end of the season, which kind of busted up what was a great run for him, who knows, maybe Brian Rust finally holds onto that spot next season, but I wouldn't bet on it. Just to quantify also uh, how integral Sidney Crosby was to Gensel's even strength scoring success. Gensel had 31 even strength goals. Sidney Crosby had the primary assist on 16 of those uh, five times. He had the secondary assist. So 21 assists uh, on Gensel's 31 goals. The next 
most regular assister on Gensel's goals was Chris Letang, who had four primaries, four secondaries for eight total Jake Gensel assists. Yeah, in fact, I'm actually surprised that Crosby didn't have more assists on Jake Gensel's goals. That means a lot of goals that Crosby wasn't even getting a point on that Gensel was still scoring. Uh, and also, hey, Brian, would it be crazy to say, what if the reason why Sidney Crosby had that big bump in production last season was because Jake Gensel was so good? Like, what if oh, you could it, flip it? It definitely helped Sidney Crosby to be playing with Jake Gensel at even strength to have a shooter uh, who was converting Unlike last season when Gensel was not converting, he was converting below 10%. And it shows in Crosby's five on five shooting percentage, which was up at almost 11% last year, which is probably a little too high, but it's closer to reasonable, in my opinion, than the 6% uh, on ice shooting percentage at five on five that Crosby had in 17, 18. So yeah, yeah, they, they, they're working together. And I think that it, it's positive for both of them, right? It's not all Crosby. It's not all Gensel. Yeah, very exciting. Dave Betton is here in the chat room, our reigning Keeping Carlson Alta Patriot Fantasy League Tier 1 champion. He says that Gensel's going to be a point-per-game player next season. So how can we argue with that? Uh, welcome, Dave. Brian, so who do you got next? Who else did we were we wrong about? I love how we, we just brushed past the fact that we got this. Why did we get it wrong? Is it because we didn't expect him to play with Crosby all season? I think that was a part of it. We also thought that maybe, uh, well, we thought, one, he didn't have enough of a power play role, and, and on in, in that sense, we were actually right. Uh, we thought that also Jake Gensel, maybe he was just a 10% shooter uh, when it turns out he might be a 15 or 17% shooter, yeah. right? His rookie season, he shot 21% and then he went down to 9%. We're like, yeah, that's, that's probably closer to right. But Jake Gensel could very well be an above average converter. And this season will go a long way towards showing us. Yeah, I feel like this is a hard one to say that we've learned any lessons from. And I know the goal of this is try to learn so we'll be better at projecting next season. But I mean, Gensel had 48 points in 2017-18, and then we projected him for like 60 points. So we did say that we think he's better. But what were we supposed to do? Like go to 80-point projection? Yeah, what we didn't see is that he would be a top 10, top 15, five-on-five producer. Like we thought he'd improve. We didn't know just how quickly uh, he could move towards his ceiling yeah i guess the lesson is we need to maybe put a lot more stock into a player's pedigree i guess and not to just the previous season so like someone like jake gensel who cam robinson's been talking about forever is going to be like a huge stud and it took him like a year later but yeah so i don't know i'll try to remember this for when we're making our projections and as we talk about players i'll try to think of which player could fit into the jake gensel mold of someone who struggled last season but maybe he's just a year early and he's about to break out But okay, let's go to the next player. All right, so here's another player that every projector uh, missed by about 15 points. And Elon, you and I are included in that. Uh, He plays for the Boston Bruins, and his name is Brad. You know, I've been calling him Marchand a lot, but I've been watching a lot of playoff hockey coverage, and they're calling him Marchand. I think it can go either way. I'm going to stick with Marchand for the rest of this, though. Ooh, Brad Marchand. Brian, can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah, it is Brad Marchand. I actually haven't heard anyone call him Brad Marchand except for you. Uh, no. Adam in the chat room is pointing out, we talked about someone who might fit the Gensel mold, William Nylander, right? He, we thought he was going to be really good. Then last year he was disappointing. Maybe Nylander is going to be next season's Jake Gensel. So good call, Adam. I love the analogies. Brian, 
I have an analogy for you, by the way. We'll save it for oh, after no. we talk about Marshawn, but I've got my this season analogy. No, you need you need to save it for a more relevant time. <laughs> okay. You can I'm... just like wedge it in there when it makes no contextual sense. All but right, now we've fine. talked about it. So you do by the end of the show, you need to find yeah. a way to segue into it. That's your I'll, challenge. I'll try my best. But okay, so go on okay. with Brad Marchand. So Brad Marchand, a uh, hundred points in 79 games last season. That's a hundred and four point pace. Elon, you, me, and all the other projectors had him at 85. Do you remember? Uh, so, Come like, on. and let's go back. No, let's just go back because the season before, Brad Marchand had a 103-point pace, and you, me, and everyone else decided, oh, that's that's 20 points too many. He's not going to do that again. Do you, do you have any recollection as to why you thought that? No, I wish. I hope you do. I hope you remember. <laughs> I, I'm going to say when I don't remember, it's probably because I was just going with whatever you were saying and being like, that makes sense. I'm going to agree with you. Yeah, so there was there was a part of Marchand's uh, production last year that we didn't like, and that was in his underlying numbers, his shot rates. We loved his production, but his shot rates dipped last season, and we couldn't see him managing another 100-plus points if that level of shot generation didn't pick up, and we guessed that he wouldn't pick it back up. Uh, we'll get back to Well, actually, no, we don't need to get back to it. Oh. Uh, we were wrong. He did pick up his shot generation. We thought maybe it was just going to, like, he was going to start tailing off. He's at that point in his career. Uh, this was his age 30, uh, 31. No, it was age 30 season. So uh, maybe this is just time for Brad Marchand to, like, not fall off a cliff, but slowly start declining. Uh, he did not. And he and Jake Gensel actually have something in common from their surprising seasons. And that was that Brad Marchand was amazing at five on five. He had the 16th best five on five scoring in the entire NHL, uh, both in counting numbers and per 60 rates. Unlike Jay Gensel though, Brad Marchand also put up similarly impressive numbers on the power play, or maybe that's understating it to say Marchand was simply impressive. He had a career high 34 power play points. And this is a great time to remind everyone of one of my favorite modern day hockey factoids, which I share every chance I get. And that's that Brad Marchand was not even playing on a top power play unit until 2016-17, three seasons ago. And that was his eighth year in the league. And here he is, his third season as a top power play guy, putting in 34 power play points. Uh, Marchand also had a career high in one other scoring category. Uh, It wasn't even strength scoring, Elon. Are you able to guess what it was? Power play scoring? No, I said he already got the power play scoring. Short, short-handed scoring? Yeah, well, that's all <laughs> there's left. I did not go about that so it well. It could have been overtime scoring. <laughs> yeah, give yourself credit for guessing short-handed scoring. Brett Marchand had seven short-handed points last season. Um, in the Almanac, I actually went out of my way to point out that Brad Marchand had five shorthanded points in 17-18, and he's probably not going to repeat that. Let's not count it in his projection. And then he went out and he got seven this year, which was good for third in the league behind classic shorthanded point getter Michael Grabner. And Elon, I would ask you to guess, but you never will, who is between Grabner and Brad Marchand in the standings. You want to take one wild stab? Well, give me a team at least. Calgary. Froleek. You know what? I get to ask you to name every player you know on Calgary, and you Jan- still... Jankowski. It was Mark Jankowski. <laughs> Good job. You underestimate me. Uh, yeah, Mark Jankowski, second in the league in short-handed scoring this year. 
uh, Brad Marchand third. But now Brad Marchand leads the NHL in shorthanded points over the last six seasons. Lots of the time, like I say, don't worry about shorthanded points. Sometimes a player lucks into them. For very few players, is it a repeatable skill? Uh, Brad Marchand, I understand now, is one of those players. Yeah. He has 30 shorthanded points in the last six seasons. The next best, Patrice Bergeron with 22 shorthanded points. And then you've got Grabner and Andrew Cogliano at 19 shorthanded points. So Marchand, how did I not... What, what, was I, I must have been researching something while you were saying this in the Almanac last year. Because, of course, like, why would I let you get by with saying he had five power, shorthanded points last season? He probably won't do it again when, like, the past, like, five seasons, he's also had five shorthanded points. I'm, I'm also mad that you didn't call me out on that when I said it. Because in hindsight, it seems like a massive blind spot he's in a league of his own in shorthanded scoring so go ahead and bank on those five or more shorthanded points from Marchand again next year my bad there uh so let's look at his power play on five on five production so uh, I mentioned that Marchand's shot rates had dipped at five on five and it didn't look good and we thought he wasn't going to pick it back up and then he did so uh what looked unsustainable in 17-18 because of a of a bit of a decline in shot rates uh, looked sustainable in 1819 with healthier shot rates to underlie them. So good for Brad Marchand there. Um, where does this leave us for next year in Marchand's age 31 season? Uh, I think he's going to get 100 points again. You know, maybe you can shave a few off the power play. Remember, he he paced for 104. So his percentages on the power play were maybe a touch favorable. Um, if I wanted to hit Marchand harder for age, I couldn't. It's kind of enticing to do so, knowing that he's got a short summer ahead of him with Boston going to the Stanley Cup finals. But I am going to think long and hard before I put myself in a position where I'm in danger of once again underestimating Brad Marchand in 2019-20. And that's why at this point, I'm leaning towards another 100-point season uh, from Marchand, thanks to another five or more shorthanded points. Yeah, I guess another thing with Marchand, he's playing with David Pasternak, who... Like, I don't know, because they're both such great superstars, but I feel like Pasternak is really looking like, a, you know, a guy you could draft third, fourth overall in a fantasy draft, and you're not dumb for doing it. So, like, he's playing with this amazing player, and, like, Bergeron's so good. And by the way, Brian, to give ourselves a bit of a break, if that's okay, I think this is fair. Like, yeah, we were low on Marshan because you're saying we projected him for 85 points, and he ended up with 100 points. But, like, as far as ranking, because in the, at the end of the day, like, fantasy leagues aren't you pick a player, and you pick how many points you think they'll get, and then whoever's closest wins right it's just like you're trying to pick players against your opponents we had him like 10th overall in scoring like the only players who we projected more points than Marchand were uh McDavid Kucherov McKinnon Malkin uh, we're talking point pace by the way Gaudreau Crosby Stamkos Pasternak and Kuznetsov and I guess Kuznetsov we were wrong he didn't end up being as good as we thought then we had a bunch of guys tied with Marchand with 85 points so it's not as if we were like so so far off on him but I guess the one lesson because I'm trying to come up with a lesson for each of these I think the lesson I'm going to take away from this and tell me if you agree is that you saw that his shots were down. And so then you said, oh, so that means his shooting percentage was unsustainable because he was still scoring goals, but he was doing it with fewer shots. So you jumped to the conclusion, oh, well, now that his shots are down, he's probably not gonna be able to keep up the shooting percentage. But we maybe we didn't give enough credit to the fact that maybe he just had low shots. And that was the thing that was unsustainable. Like maybe his shots were going to come back up. So maybe next season, if we have a player who's consistently a guy who shoots whatever, like 200 shots a year, and I know Marshawn's higher than that, but like, let's say you have a guy that's uh, consistently 200 shots a year. And then last season he was down to like 170. 
then maybe like that's the thing where we should say like don't just assume he's going to be 170 again maybe he's just going to go back up to 200 so i I guess that's going to be my lesson i take from the marchand mistake yeah, I think you're right. I was a little too eager, perhaps, to to draw a line between declining shot totals and his age. And also, I was concerned about his line mate's age. Patrice Bergeron, 33 years old, but maybe that's washed out by Pasternak continuing to mature and coming up on the other end at 22 years old this season. Here's a guy who we were not drawing a line between age and decline. He's too young for that. He's right in the peak of his career. Uh, Jonathan Huberdeau, this was his age 25 season. And Elon, you said he'd have 60 points. I said he'd have 65. The average projector said 68. And he ended up with 92 points. Just a massive season for Jonathan Huberto, proving a lot of the haters wrong. Elon, you were one of the the most hatingest of him in the preseason. You had him lower than I think a lot of people did, uh, lower than I did at least. Do you remember uh, what about his his fortunes in 1819 you weren't loving during yeah. preseason i remember it well and <laughs> clearly i have egg on my face now but yeah what was concerning me was he had 69 point pace the previous season but that was like a really tale of two seasons like he was so good at the start of the 2017-18 season when he was playing on a line with Alex Barkov but then at the end of the season Florida switched things up and they put Nick Bjugstad on the top line with Barkov and Dadanov and then Huberdo was playing on the second line I guess with Trocek and I don't even remember some nobody, or probably probably not, probably someone that was fine, but I don't remember who it was at the moment. And I remember his numbers weren't looking good. So I was saying, going into the next season, I thought, okay, now uh, that's probably going to stick, and he's probably still not going to play with Barkov. So I'm going to assume he's going to be more like the production he had away from Barkov as opposed to the production with Barkov. Of course, this was dumb, I guess, in hindsight, because Mike Hoffman was coming in, so like Huberto was going to be playing with good players no matter what, and he was on the top power play, and like, and also he just had this... Like, I'm going to be surprised if you tell me you think he's going to get 92 points again. But yeah, he had just had this amazing season and he did end up having the great line mates. And I think he even did play with Barkov for a lot of the season. So like, I was wrong about a lot of things. I was assuming that Nick Bjugstad and Alex Barkov on line one was like going to be a thing. I drafted Nick Bjugstad in, I know, in the couple and I had to like drop him with my tail between my legs a few weeks into the season when I realized that was not happening. I don't know if there's a player who pops up more frequently than Nick Bugstad in big projections that you've made wrong. Remember our infinite, our infamous Bugstad versus Barkov bet where you had Bugstad being better uh, than Barkov. You yeah. love bringing that up. You know, there's been a lot of things you've gotten wrong and I don't bring them up. Over I'm just, and over again. you have a checkered history with Bugstad is all I'm saying. It's really nice that you believe in him. He's just sent you a little card. No, I'm and- over him now. <laughs> yeah, I actually said, remember, Brian, when Bjugstad went to Pittsburgh and yeah. I was like, everyone is so excited and grabbing him and all their leagues. Like, oh, anytime anyone gets traded to Pittsburgh, everyone always loses their minds. <laughs> like, oh, he's going to play with Crosby. He's going to play with Malkin. And every single time that player ends up doing nothing. And I was the one saying, don't add. I remember I tweeted it. I was like, it's not going to happen. And then I was totally right. So I'm over Bjugstad. I'm on the other side. I say like Bjugstad sucks. Yeah, and so I I would agree with you there. Uh, He's not a terribly fancy relevant player, not the one we hoped he would have been once upon a time. But let's get back to Jonathan Huberdeau. And Elon, you touched on this in saying, you know, I don't think your projection was coming from the wrong place. You justified it very well. 
Unfortunately, the Vincent Trocek injury was the worst thing to happen to your projection, but also the best thing that happened to Jonathan Huberdeau in 2018-19. In our almanac, uh, yeah, we did muse aloud that Huberdeau's likely fall in deployment from top line with Barkov to second line with Trocek was going to make it hard for Huberdeau to top his very nice 69.17-18 season. And to Huberdeau's credit, he did manage to keep up exactly that point pace through his first 20 games playing with Trocek, uh, picking up 17 points in that opening stretch, but very much on the heels of excellent power play production, which we had anticipated being there, right? We said drop and even strength deployment. Hopefully he can hold on to his power play deployment. But then uh, around the 17-18 game mark, Vincent Trocek got injured. Uh, Huberto played a couple games with Bjorgstad and Vitrano, and then he ended back up on the top line with Barkov, and it was there that Huberto's production just exploded. Huberto was pacing for 37 even strength points in the first 20 games he didn't play with Barkov. Uh, then he went ahead and paced for 65 points at even strength while playing with Barkov, uh, picking up 49 points in 62 games at five on five uh, while playing alongside Barkov on the top line. I keep saying with Barkov, but that really is the story here. Right. And I don't want to sell Huberto short. He's a really good hockey player, but Barkov makes a good, a really good hockey player great. Barkov is one of the elite top line centermen in the league, and he will add 10, 15 points to anybody's totals. So that's the story with Huberto. Uh, you know, continued second line time with Vincent Trocek maybe would have had Huberto around 70 points, which still would have beaten our projections because Huberto had 34 points on the power play, which is Brad Marchand level successful. Um, and those uh, for Huberto, by the way, came mostly in the form of primary assists. He had 25 primary assists on the power play, which tied him for fifth in the NHL in that category. But yeah, like Huberto was not going to have beaten any of our projections by so much without uh, that Trocek injury leading to him playing with Barkov again. So right now we're trying to figure out, well, what's going to happen next year. Is he going to play with Trocek now that Trocek's healthy uh, or does he stay up with Barkov? And we have a question mark in Florida with a capital Q in the form of Joel Quenville uh, taking over behind the bench. Uh, I don't know how Quenville is going to deploy Huberto. This is one of those situations where we are going to be watching Every day in training camp, I'm going to be reading interviews with Quenville asking how Huberto is going to be deployed, where Barkov, where Trocek, where Dadanov, where all these guys are going to land in the lineup. Um, what I will say, though, is even if Huberto does get identical deployment, he probably shouldn't quite garner 92 points, uh, even if regression hits like that's if regression hits as expected uh, like Huberto probably did get a, a little bit of friendly percentages so I'm gonna say uh we're gonna wait till training camp to get a better sense but for now Huberto top line 80 85 points like point per game player not on the top line 65 70 points is where I'm gonna land with him yeah, I almost feel like I'd like to just make two sets of projections for Florida and for Vegas, like depending on how the line combinations shake out, because that's really going to decide so much. And again, with Florida, there's going to be that odd man out on the top power play, like Joel Quenville, maybe will want Vincent Trocek back on the top power play full time. And there's not room for five forwards. They, they tried five forwards, actually, but I think they're probably going to have Yandel there. And then one of Barkov, Huberdeau, Dadanov, 
Trocek, Hoffman, like one of them doesn't make the cut. If that's Huberdo, that makes a big difference because you said 34 power, but you'd think with so many power play points and so many primary assists on the power play, that seems like it would be dumb to drop him from the top power play, but all those players, you know, you can make good cases for. So yeah, it's going to be tough and we'll probably get it wrong again, but I'll try to be better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At least you can be as close as the rest of us when we're getting it wrong. Yeah, I'm not going to take a swing on Huberdo next season. I'm going to try to stick with what the other projectors are doing. Maybe we're going to read everyone else's projection and uh, and just go with them. So here's a player, uh, the next guy uh, that everybody was wrong about. You were we flipped. So I had him at 65 points. You and the pack Elon had him at 70 points, but Brent Burns ended up scoring 83 points this season. That's a career high. Elon, do you know how many years Brent Burns has been in the NHL? A whole bunch. And the thing is, like, I'm over this whole, like, aging curve thing. It seems wrong. Like, (laughs) as far as this season went, all these players are having career years in their 30s. So I feel like 30s is the new 20s as far as the NHL goes. And Brent Burns, I wouldn't even be surprised if he has another career year next year. Like, this guy seems unstoppable. He's amazing. This was the 12th year of Brent Burns' career. He's 33 years old, man alive, setting a career high. Do you remember, isn't it quaint, Elon, to think back to the time when we were worried that there would be fewer points to go around in San Jose with Eric Carlson in the picture? Yeah. And to be fair, uh, even before Carlson was in San Jose, uh, I had Burns at 70 points and then I took him down because Carlson was coming uh, obviously, that was dumb, and I made myself wronger. Um, what we thought would happen, or what I thought would happen, 70 points would have been essentially a continuation of 2017-18 for Brent Burns. That was a season in which he pays for 67 points, almost 10 fewer than in each of the two years before that one. Uh, but remember, he had that awful like first 20 games of the season that everyone was freaking out about. But at the same time, uh, Brent Burns also had numbers on the power play that suggested uh, maybe his power play performance was slowing down a bit as he marched toward his mid-30s. And also, by the way, uh, we were wrong, but Brent Burns set a career high in his 12th season at 33 years old, 83 points. Like, who would have expected him to do that? Um, So where did we go wrong? And where did I go wronger than you and the pack, Elon? So first off, I want to say, I wasn't totally wrong about his power play performance slowing down. Brent Burns continued to take fewer shots on goal on the power play. So that continued the trend that I noticed in 1718. But in contrast to 1718, the shots that Burns took in 1819 were substantially more dangerous. Brent Burns had triple the amount of high danger scoring chances uh, per 60 minutes on the power play in 1819 than he did in 1718. He also saw a bounce back in his expected goals for per 60 on the power play. And that might be why Brent Burns shot a career high 11.5% with the man advantage. Sometimes I would look at that career high shooting percentage and say, ah, you know, like that's obviously going to regress. That was a one-off. In this case, I'm not so sure. And I wonder if he can keep up some measure of it because you look at where Brent Burns was shooting from this past season and compare it to the seasons before, And you see a trend of Brent Burns getting to take, for the first time, more shots on his offside. So he's a right-handed defenseman. That means he got to take shots from the left side of the ice more often, many of which were probably one-timer opportunities that he hadn't been getting before. His role was to just bomb from the middle of the blue line and his right-hand side. 
but he was able to move towards the left and hit some one-timers. And Bramberg also crept up a little bit more into his offhand face-off circle. Think of where Alex Ovechkin scores from. Uh, maybe not quite as close to the net, but moving towards that spot is where Brent Burns was getting a lot of his shots off on the power play, which helped him produce there. And then at five on five, Brent Burns had some helpful regression. He had a five on five on ice shooting percentage. Uh, that was a very sad 6% in 2017, 18. It bumped up to a more reasonable 9%. Uh, so that was good regression for Brent Burns to get to help him get to these 83 points. One spot where Brent Burns may have gotten help that he shouldn't count on getting next year, though, is on the penalty kill. He had five shorthanded points, Elon. And unlike Brad Marchand, this is not something he does every year. In the 11 years prior, Brent Burns had six shorthanded points total. So this year he put up five. But did he I'm have not... more time uh, shorthanded? Or it, was, it was the same? Similar shorthanded time. Okay. It probably won't yeah. happen again. Unlikely to happen again. But aside from that, honestly, we're looking at a pretty sustainable 80-ish points from a 33-year-old whose career high was 76 going into this season. Um, so in San Jose, it's this is such a hard time of the year. Like We're so close to player movement finally happening. And we've mentioned with a bunch of the Sharks we've talked about, it's like a lot is up in the air, right? Does Carlson come back? How does that affect Brent Burns? Does Pavelski come back? Does Thornton come back? How does all of this land in Brent Burns' projection next year? You know, if if he loses one of Carlson or Pavelski, I'll take him back down to 75 points again. This is age 34 season two. Um, if both of them leave, I might take him down. If both and both of them, I mean both Carlson and Pavelski, I might take Brent Burns down another couple points, but we'll have to wait and no. see what happens in the off season. I'm going to land somewhere in the 70 to 80 point range, depending on who the other personnel will be in San Jose. Yeah. I think that would be a mistake because like whatever Pavelski leaves, Timo Meyer will step up and be the new Pavelski. You know, like, okay, I don't, I'm but, not too worried, but let's say the fact that Eric Carlson was in San Jose helped Brent Burns get those more dangerous shooting opportunities on the power play. Honestly, Brian, I'm just mad that I let you convince me to not go higher on Brent Burns in the first place. Like, I should have been right. I'm looking at my notes for when we recorded the San Jose chapter. This is what I wrote. I wrote verbatim, don't let anyone tell you that Burns' 67 points last season are an indication that he's slowing down. It's a dirty lie. Like, yeah, he sucked in his first 19 games. Big whoop. He took a bunch of shots. Nothing went in. And then after that, he had 60 points in his final 63 games. And I said that I asked you my typical almanac question from last year, which was the real Brent Burns, the first quarter Brent Burns or the other. And you probably said something like, oh, it's a mixture of both. No, I definitely didn't. Because in my notes, I said to disregard that whole first 19 games where he took like 88 shots before scoring a goal and everything else looks great. You know, I, I think you... Like you, so you think that if I hadn't gotten to you, you would have said 75 instead of 70? I think so. Like he had 60 points in his final 63 games that last season. That's like an 80 point pace. I don't know why it went down so far. I feel like a must. I'll have to go back and listen. I feel like you convinced me. But either way, I'm not worried about him next year. I'm probably going to say 80 because I, I don't know. I just don't want, like, he's the type of guy I might draft like first overall in a league, depending on the categories and the setup. But in a league where defensemen, like let's say if you have like six D spots and it's super hard to find defensemen in free agency and also hits and blocks are counted. Like obviously you probably want to get Connor McDavid if you can, Kucherov maybe. But once I'm at third overall and I'm deciding between like Burns or McKinnon, like I feel like I would maybe go Burns. Just such a reliable producer. And 
we're maybe even nitpicking like 75 or 80 points. Like he's going to, I feel like he's almost for sure going to be the top scoring defenseman in the league. Plus all those shots on goal. Like I know right now we're just looking at points, but he's so valuable in fantasy because he was like one of the league leaders in shots on goal. And like, he's a defenseman. Come on. So good. So good at 300 shots last year, which was his lowest total in the last four seasons. So yeah. Elon, do you, like, are you counting on 300 plus next year? Yeah, or less like or exactly 300 more like Marshawn had, uh, you know, less and then he j- bounced back and Burns. Like, you're talking about all these players leaving like, you know, like Carlson was there. So he gets to take some shots, you know, like, I don't know. Now Burns is going to go probably go or who knows. Right. But like, I feel like Brent Burns is around 300 shots. OK, OK, I'll say around the same. How about that? Sounds good. That's a wise choice. And then uh, uh, the last player just in this, we've got three left, but the last player that everybody was wrong on, uh, according to Fantasy Refs projector rankings, was Tomas Hurdle. I, I was the most wrong on Tomas Hurdle. I quote uh, from the Almanac, I have always been right projecting Hurdle at 45 points, so I'm going to keep doing it until mm-hmm. he shows me otherwise. That was my line on him. So I put him down for 47 points. He actually ended up with 74. The field had him at 50. So they 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 were a little more optimistic than me. Elon, you were you might have been the closest of anybody on Tomas Hurdle. You had him for 60 points. That's Boom. amazing. That's that's 13 more than I thought he'd get. Uh, 10 more than everyone else thought he'd get. Still 14 short of what he actually got, but I don't think anyone was closer. Uh how did you know? I'm a brilliant genius. I mean, <laughs> isn't it clear? No, I think that my reasoning at the time was Hurdle hadn't been a top power. When he was a 45-point guy, he wasn't a top power play guy. And that San Jose top power play just gets so many points. Like, it's such a good top power play. And I actually, I'm looking at my notes now, and I was pointing out that in the playoffs last year, the top power play was Pavelski, Couture, Hurdle, LeBanc, and Burns. So, like, Hurdle had taken over one of those spots it wasn't like evander kane like i think some people thought that evander kane might get a top power play spot but it was like hurdle had already taken it and he held on to it and i feel like that was probably my main reason i probably was like keep him at the same number of even strength points but add like 15 more power play points and i don't know if that's actually how it ended up turning out like i know it also helped that he did really well at even strength uh, but going into next season if we're gonna switch now to that like i feel like i'm good for him to do even better <laughs> like now i feel like if thor if thornton leaves and pavelski leaves we might be looking at like top line center Tomash Hurdle. Okay, so uh, he had 15 power play points last season with more power play time. The season before, he had 12 power play points. So it wasn't quite a commensurate bump. So, so you're saying I was right for the wrong reason? I think so. I oh, think everybody oh. who wants to say they're right about Tomash Hurdle it was right for the wrong reason. Although, Elon, I, I trust you a little more than everybody else. Um, we actually covered Hurdle on our episode two weeks ago, so I'm not going to totally rehash it again. But essentially, uh, what he had going for him, and we'll probably still have going for him next year, more minutes, more power play role, uh, more line mates beyond just having Couture, right? Like this year, he had Evander Kane, Timo Meyer, an improving Kevin LeBanc. That all worked in his favor, but as I pointed out on our last episode, so did Hurdle's shooting percentage. To repeat a line that I said last week, Hurdle took one more shot, one single shot extra in 18-19 compared to 17-18, but he scored 13 more goals. And his shots did not appear to be substantially more dangerous this year compared to last. So I'm not assuming that Tomas Hurdle is going to score 35 goals again next season. 39 assists? Sure, I can get with that. But I'm not getting with him being a 35-goal guy. Uh, 
I would have him in the mid to high 20s, which you hated when I mentioned two weeks ago. I'll also allow for some additional growth in his power play role. So maybe he makes up a couple goals there. Um, But I'm actually going to have him uh, falling down from his 79-point pace this season. I'm not sure exactly how far yet. If I wanted to really make you mad, I'd say 65 points. But I feel like I can get myself up to 70, depending on what other pieces move in San Jose. Yeah, we'll have to see where things land. But if he ends up being like a top-line guy playing with Couture all season long and on the top power play, it's going to be hard for me to not have him at at least 75. But I guess we will see. Adam saying he might be significantly concussed. So yeah, hopefully he's fine. Uh, just for, in, on a human level and like for next season hopefully that's not gonna affect anything and hopefully also the sharks won't be dumb and play him if he's injured in the next playoff game because that would be ridiculous it, right, it's like have- you're gonna lose anyways because you have martin jones in net so you might as well not uh, injure tomash hurdle yeah don't don't make anything worse you're just two wins away from the stanley cup final but martin jones is your goalie so just throw in the- everybody should just stop playing actually just so they don't get hurt <laughs> Well, I'm just, okay, there's a, Brian, I can't believe you're saying that. Like if someone has a potential concussion, it's very dangerous. To oh no. Play. So I, I absolutely agree with you there. I don't want to say it. like, you know, if you're pushing for a cup and your goalie's red hot, maybe you take the risk. But with Martin Jones in it, I feel like don't go overboard, but okay. I'm just kidding around. So now you're going to talk about players that we were wrong on. By the way, Brian, before you get into the guys that we were specifically wrong on, let me tell you something that I myself personally was wrong on, which was my analogy last year that I thought that the uh, Buffalo Sabres were going to be the New York Islanders from the previous season. So I made this analogy like two seasons ago, the Islanders had Matt Barzell come out of nowhere and be a superstar on the second line while John Tavares was on the top line as the center. And I was like, oh, it's kind of like the like Buffalo for that next season. Cause I was saying Eichel could be the Tavares. And I was saying that Casey Middlestack could be the Barzal. And that's why I was saying, oh, maybe there's good. Oh, sorry, Matt Barzal. Uh, so yeah, I was saying that maybe Casey Middlestack would be the next Barzal. And then I was putting Darlene as the, I don't even remember at this point, like one of those defensemen. Anyway, I had that whole analogy. I ended up being wrong. Like Middlestat was terrible. Buffalo was bad. Like, I mean, calling Eichel good, that turned out to be right. But that was about it. Uh, so, Brian, do you want to hear my analogy? Now, since I did seamlessly put it into the episode like you requested, can I tell you my analogy for next season? You've earned this opportunity. Everybody wants to know. Okay, so here's my analogy for next season. I'm sure I'll be wrong again, but I'm thinking, so New Jersey's going to get the first pick overall, right, in the draft. And we assume, though actually Cam Robinson's saying maybe not, like, but we're assuming they're going to take Jack Hughes. They might take Kako, but for now I'm going to assume they're going to take Jack Hughes. And I was thinking, what if the New Jersey Devils are the new Edmonton Oilers? Where, okay, so Jack Hughes would be the McDavid, first overall pick, superstar pedigree. Okay, then that makes Taylor Hall the dry sidle, the guy that like is a superstar in his own right. And now he's going to maybe play wing. <laughs> so yeah, just like dry sidle sometimes played wing with McDavid. So there's a little bit of a discrepancy there because dry sidle also plays center. But that's okay. Then the thing that really clinches it for me is maybe Nico Heeshear is the Ryan Nugent Hopkins. This like really good defensive player who's also good at scoring but unfortunately he's going to get bumped to not be the top line center anymore and so he's not going to be able to reach his full offensive potential so like he sure is the ryan Nugent hopkins so i don't know i thought that maybe that makes sense that's my analogy so far for the summer it's just so hard to like want to get excited about a team that you're comparing to edmonton well yeah well like, i'm not saying i'm not saying edmonton 
I'm not saying that they, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm not like, I don't think New Jersey is in a very good spot for next year because who do they have on defense? Who do they have in net? So that's a problem. Just like on Edmonton, who do they have on defense and who do they have in net? So there you go. The analogy continues. It's perfect. Wow. Amazing. I, I look forward to you building this analogy out over the course of the summer. I wonder who the Alex Shia son is. <laughs> I wonder who the Miles Wood is. Or no, who my. Maybe that, am, be, I, am I going in the right direction no, here? Alex Chiasan is the Miles Wood. I don't know. I haven't really put that one together. I feel like the Chiasan could be like the the Blake Coleman, like a guy who sometimes does really well, but then also he's Blake Coleman slash Alex Chiasan. So can you really expect it to keep up? Does that work? I like Coleman more than Chiasan. Okay, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> now that we've gotten through that, let's do these final players okay. that we got wrong. I'm not we're even... Being, we're beating uh, ourselves up right now, right? Like, I hope people appreciate the fact that we're, like, admitting our faults here, and we're going to keep doing it in the next episode. And hopefully this isn't, like, a commercial for why you shouldn't buy the Almanac, <laughs> uh, because we're going to try to learn lessons. And also, we got a, a lot of things right. Like, if you check out Fantasy Ref, we were right there with the pack of projectors. And some of these people have been making projections for, like, 20 seasons plus. And this was Brian and I's first ever try at making fantasy projections. So I, I'm pretty happy with us. But, yeah, we got to learn our lessons, and let's beat ourselves up some more with some players even worse now because these are guys that we were wrong about that everyone else wasn't as wrong about and nobody wants to listen to uh countless hours of us saying i got marcus johansson right at 40 points i don't think that would make for very exciting content so uh, there has to be tension so there's tension here in fact there's a there's a fair amount of tension here with blake wheeler who had another 91 point season that makes it back-to-back career-high 91 point seasons for Blake Wheeler Elon he's a guy uh, that me and the pack were uh, not quite right he finished 91 points I had him at 81 the pack had him at 83 you had him at 75 you were not feeling Blake Wheeler so I actually went back and listened to that chapter just today when I saw that you were going to point out like that I was so wrong about him and I had him down at 75. By the way, you had him at 80 and I had him at 75. It's not as if we were so far off. 81. Oh, excuse me. Well, I was doing multiples of five, so I wasn't allowing myself that opportunity. But yeah, I said probably between 75 and 80 in the almanac. Uh, But then I said, you know what, Brian, I'm going to take a swing and I'm going to go down to 75. And the reason was you like you when you did your analysis of him, you were talking about how he had more power play points than you thought he'd be able to do again. And so I and that's why you took off 10 points. And then you also were talking about how he had some like a lower number of shots, kind of like a Brad Marchand thing. And you were talking about the aging curve. And so I decided to listen to you and even take more of a swing than you because also you had been ragging on me at that point in the almanac about how I wasn't taking enough swing and you thought that all my projections were boring compared to yours because I was um, sticking closer to what they did the previous season. And we were like Winnipeg. We were at the W. So you were. You, this was one of your last chances to prove me wrong. Yeah, and so I was like, you know what, Brian, for you, I said, like, I think he's going to be between 75 and 80, but give me 75. I'm going to take a swing. I'm going to be lower on him than everyone else. And you were like complimenting me. You were like, good for you, Elon. You should take more swings. And then look what happened. So next, my lesson for next Almanac <laughs> is to not care what you say about my projections. Is to just make the most boring projections and be uh, the most boring level of right and wrong. I just don't want... It's more fun if you're a little more wrong. I'm saying that I'm not going to be trying to impress you. I'm going to be trying (laughs) to get it right. (laughs) You're never trying. When's the last time you tried to impress me? I was listening to it in that moment. I was. You said I'm proud of you. You you were (laughs) complimenting me and you could could hear my heart swell (laughs) at the excitement of you being happy with me. I was probably about to say, uh, Shifley, 40 points. (laughs) Bufflin, 20 points. (laughs) 
Uh, well, you know, we were both right about the power play points. You were right to follow me down that path. Um, in 1718, Blake Wheeler had 40 power play points. He was on the ice for 46 power play goals, though. So that means 46 times the Jets scored a power play goal while he was on the ice. He was on the score sheet for that goal all but six times. And that's what we call an unsustainable IPP. There's no way you're going to be in on that many of the goals you're on the ice for. Um, Elon, so we were right there. His power play points total dropped down to 33 points in 2018-19, which is still a very nice total, uh, but coming with a reasonable IPP. He had 40 points as Blake Wheeler still. He had 40 points at five on five, which is just one less than 2017-18. Okay, so he's up to 73 points. Then add three shorthanded points, a couple three on three points. You're up to 78 points, which is still just shy of our projections about where we thought Blake Wheeler would land. So what pushed him all the top uh, over the top? Like what's pushed him all the way up to 91 points, way above where we thought he'd be? Uh, any guesses? Shorthanded. <laughs> <laughs> no, I already said he had three shorthanded points. Can you guess another game state that I have not yet named? Overtime. No, I named that too. Well, now you're calling me out for not listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> you bet I am. Uh, uh, pa- pa- power play. <laughs> oh my God. Empty net. <laughs> did you see me just highlight it in the dock? <laughs> How many empty net points did he have? He had 12 Empty net points in 1819. Blake Wheeler just just picking up all kinds of points when the other team had pulled their goalie. That's twice his usual output from the last few years. And that's honestly really the difference between uh, a guy that we miss a little on and a guy we miss by enough that he lands on this list. So Blake Wheeler uh, was able to puff up his numbers with some empty net production uh, that made him uh, stand out just a little more than he should have, I think, above our projections. So I'm going to go for a sustainable point-per-game guy again next year. I had him at 81. Maybe I'll put him at like 82, 83, 85 maybe, but I'm not going for another 91-point season from Wheeler. Yeah, I guess that's fair. That's pretty rare to get so many empty net points. That doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you could keep doing year in and year out. I know I said that last year about the Avalanche with power play points, and I was saying how they had like more power play opportunities than everyone else in the league, and it wouldn't happen again. And then it turned out that they had, again, the most power play <laughs> opportunities. So maybe Winnipeg will once again have all of these empty net opportunities. Because this is the kind of thing where you just have to be in the situation where you're up by a goal in a lot of games that the other team pulls their goalie and then you're able to get a chance at an empty net goal. So I think that makes sense. Let's put him around 85 or 80 and I'll feel very good about that. For what it's worth, I did look into just how much more time Blake Wheeler had playing against an empty net this year. And it wasn't significant. It wasn't enough to be able to double his point totals. It was like six or seven more minutes total. Uh, Wheeler's a weird fantasy guy for me. Okay, so you're saying that he just happened to like get more empty net goals or points, even though he didn't play more minutes. Okay, yeah, that seems like an unsustainable thing for sure. I agree with you. Wheeler's so weird to me because he was like underrated for so long. And we always talked about how Blake Wheeler, like trust us, like Blake Wheeler's so good. And then he would do well and then he'd still not be ranked super highly. So we'd say like once again, and he was like one of those guys that we kept on getting right about every single time. And then I remember going into last season, I was thinking, because again, I just listened to this chapter. I was saying like, I think for the first time he's overrated. Like I feel like now people are wanting to draft him like the top five, top 10 of fantasy leagues. And I don't think he's there. And there he goes and gets 91 points. So that I'm sure still wasn't, good enough for top 10 just because so many players got so many points and really brian when we were doing this analysis we need to look at like ranks because like every single player seemed to get so many more points except for vladimir tarasenko who stayed exactly the same 
Yeah, right. So maybe that, that, that can be another part of this almanac epilogue to see whose rank we were off on the most. Uh, Blake Wheeler, by the way, those 12 points with uh, with the other team's net empty, enough to lead the league in that category. Mark Scheifele next with 10 points. Then we've got Ovechkin and Lindholm with eight each, and then a whole bunch of guys at seven. Uh, Elon, here's a question for you. I wonder if you can figure out the answer. Also, by the way, Wheeler and Scheifele by far played the most time uh, with uh, the other net empty. They both played like 32 minutes with the other net empty. A lot of other players on this list between 15 and 20 minutes. Um, here's a question, Elon. Mark Scheifele and Lindholm and Brad Marchand all have a 67% shooting percentage against an empty net. How do you, how do you think that happens? What? <laughs> they, they took three shots and they scored on two. But it counted as a shot on goal, even though it didn't go in. Yeah. Do you think like the it was blocked by a defenseman? But, but that, that doesn't does defenseman get credit for a save. That doesn't count as a shot on goal. I think that your stats are bad. I don't think fun. they're bad. I'm gonna I'm gonna tweet. This is coming from Natural Stat Trick. I'll uh, I'll tweet Brad and see what the insight is. I think a shot on goal is uh, defined as a shot that would go in the net if it was not stopped by the goalie. Yeah. But if you yeah. change that, if the goalie's gone. Like normally a blocked shot doesn't count as a shot on goal. So you're saying that maybe in the NHL, a blocked shot counts as a shot on goal. If the net is empty, I've never heard of this. I guess anything is possible. Seems like overcomplicating. Hit the post. Alex is saying hit the post, but again, hitting the post usually doesn't count as a shot on goal. So this isn't adding up. So yeah, research that and tweet, follow us at keeping Carlson and Brian will tweet the answer once he figures it out. Uh, Brian, Let's close out the show. Who's the last player that we were both uber wrong on while everyone else wasn't? All right. The last player that fits that description is Claude Giroux. Elon, I went very low on him. I went to 72 points. I, I, that was my swing. Uh, you had 75. The pack had him at 82. And Claude Giroux finished with 85 points in 2018-19. And you know, like if you've listened to the show for long enough, you would know I've been such a big Claude Giroux booster for so long, I've stood by him when times were tough. I've blamed bad spells and slumps on the situation around him. And I've always believed that Giroud was still a hugely talented, game-breaking player. But Giroud just wasn't there for me this year when I made my swing and predicted that his career-high 101-point season in 17-18 would be followed up with a relative dud. I called him for 72 points in 18-19. And uh, he went ahead and beat that by 13 points with 85 points. What a jerk. They're all I've done for Claude Giroux. You'd think he'd be a little more thoughtful when he listened to the Almanac and heard me say how many points he should score to make me look good. Um, on the Almanac, I made sure to remind everyone that I thought uh, Giroux would have a huge 17-18 season, just not as huge as 101 points. And that was because of so many percentages that had forever been working against Giroux uh, that were bound to regress. They finally did what I saw had them regressing too hard. So I tried to correct for that in 1819, uh, but I overcorrected the other way, uh, thinking that he would be in the low to mid seventies instead of the mid eighties. Um, aside from 1718, which I think did prove to be an outlier with over a hundred points, we hadn't seen Giroux in 80 point territory for a long time since 2013, 14. And so my thought was that 31 year old Claude Giroux just might not have that in him anymore and I was wrong. So Elon, big lesson learned here with Marchand, with Burns, with Giroux. I need to stop counting out elite talent in their early 30s. You said forget the aging curve, and I'm not going to forget it entirely, but I will 
absolutely need to remember. And I, I already try to, but with these guys, there's a definite theme and that's that I will, I need to give more credit to these guys as they get older. If you're an elite talent, you're, you can stave off that aging curve a little longer. Yeah, I think the two lessons are that the aging curve and also giving too much weight to like one season where your shot rates are down. Like just because you have low shots in one season doesn't mean you're now, you know, you're now a low shooter. Like you, right. you don't shoot as I much. I mean, I generally don't think that except if a player's 31 or 32 and I'm looking for signs, right? I'm looking for trends and I'm thinking, ah, that that would make sense. Yeah, but so, I do need to give these guys some more time. Like, it's got to be two seasons before I really think it's going to stay. I don't know what I do, though. Right? If I see a 31-year-old player, see a dip in his shot rates, am I expecting it to balance up as a 32-year-old? Like, if he's an 80-plus point player? Or am I expecting it to just hold steady? And maybe he's not going to fall off more, but he's not going to, you know, repeat a 100-point season or whatever. How about this, Brian? How about if a player is generally getting, again, let's say 200 shots per season, he's done it for like five seasons in a row, and then last season he dropped like 170? Let's not assume he'll be 170 again. Let's jump Let's jump him back to like 190 or something. You know, like give it a weighted average of the last three seasons for the shots on goal, as opposed to just assuming, okay, now that he's 31, this is the new Claude Giroux. So I don't know, like we'll have to figure it out. We're learning lessons. I think this is going to be a good lesson that's going to improve our projections for next year. Yeah, me too. And I actually think that Claude Giroux probably deserved a few more points last year. Like 90 points might have been a more fair point total to reflect his efforts. Uh, so look, I'm not going to try and overcorrect on Giroux again. I think he can be a point-per-game guy in 1920. Though keep in mind, we do have a coaching change in Philadelphia. Um, so we'll see how that affects him. It really helps when Giroux gets to play with Couturier. So we'll see if that's something Alain Vigneault chooses to keep uh, happening or not. Yeah, there's a lot of players on Philly that the coaching change is going to make things really interesting. Kind of like we said about Quenville in Florida, right? We've got guys like uh, Travis Konechny, who didn't play as much on the top line last season as we maybe expected him to. So we were probably maybe a little bit wrong about his projections, or maybe everything sort of washed out. Uh, then we still have James Van Riemsdyk. We have to figure out, like, is this guy good or is he not? And who, is, who's he going to play with? Nolan Patrick, is he going to end up playing as the top line center? Or is it going to be Sean Couturier? Like, at some point, you'd assume Nolan Patrick could be that guy, maybe not. And also, like, Oscar Lindblom came out of nowhere last season and did really well. And that's just on the forwards on Philly. I feel like there's also a lot of intrigue on D, right? Because Shane Gossesbeher was just so, so bad last season. I got to imagine he's going to be a guy we're going to bring up. It, it's part of this epilogue of someone that everyone got wrong, and maybe, Brian, you especially, because you were so high on Gossesbeher going into the season. And obviously for good reason. Like, I don't mean to say that as a dig. Uh, but yeah, I've heard rumblings or I saw tweets anyways I don't know how reliable they are that maybe like someone like Travis Sanheim can maybe give Gosses Bear a run for his money next season so yeah the, with a the new coach I feel like a lot is up in the air for Philly the only thing I think I'm very confident about is Carter Hart is going to be the starting goalie and I think he's going to be a really good guy to have on your team agreed he enjoyed we, we had a thread in our Facebook group where somebody asked uh, I think it was William who are the best keeper goalies like who are the three best keeper goalies and uh you know, there, I, I listed a bunch and I also mentioned like Bennington and Hart, depending on where you get them in the draft, like could be two swings that can really, really pay off if they continue to be who they appear to be and their teams continue on an upward trend. Like St. Louis, by the way, has been, I mean, now the Tampa's out of the playoffs. St. Louis has been the best team in the NHL since January. So you have to like, I want their goalie 
on my fantasy team. Yeah, and and before that, they were like last in the league, right? Before they yeah. turned it on to be. That's, what a crazy season for St. Louis. It'd be really cool if they won. But also, Brian, you know how it goes. Like next season is not this season and maybe things will cool down but they do like going into the season that's the thing like st louis is one of these teams we're going in they looked really good in terms of depth like they had picked up perron they had picked up i guess tyler bozak which you know just like you know spread things around have really solid top nine and i thought they would be a good team like the defense looked decent and then things really were falling apart and now they turned around so maybe that's going to be an overall lesson for next season we'll try to be predicting at the start of the year when some team is struggling who's the st louis blues who's the team that's going to turn it around and yeah, I have no idea about Jordan Bennington, as we've already discussed, but I do feel very confident that Carter Hart is going to be a goalie that you're going to want to have on your fantasy team for a long time. You just got to hope that the new coach in Philly will figure things out. But I feel like they have the pieces. I just named a whole bunch of really good young players on Philly, and they should be able to figure out how to get this team to not be terrible. I think it's possible. Having Absolutely. Go- and by yeah, the way, having we, sort of, will help. we sort of knew. We saw St. Louis coming, right? We called it. Yeah. So hopefully we can we can find that team again. Yeah, Adam is asking, Hart is greater than Bennington? Like, I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it in the summer. Like, I think there's arguments for both. I think that Carter Hart is the more reliable option, as I think he's going to for sure be the starting goalie for a long time, while Jordan Bennington, I hadn't even heard of him a year ago. So for what that's worth, like, anything could happen, but I feel a lot more confident in Carter Hart. But this is just speculation, and Brian's done such a great job doing more than speculation, but really digging into things. So, Brian, thank you so much for digging into all these players that we were too low on. Next episode in a couple of weeks, we're going to do the opposite, right? We're going to look at players that we were too high on and figure out why we were wrong about them, take more lessons out of it as we head into projection season right so actually no so we got a few things coming up first we've got uh the end of the nhl playoffs so that'll be fun then we're gonna have an nhl entry draft and we're definitely going to do some episodes or at least one with cam robinson and maybe brian and i will discuss impacts of what happens at the draft in terms of teams for next season and the players who get drafted and the players who are on the teams of the players who get drafted then there's going to be july 1st unrestricted free agent signing day and the fallout of all of that and we're going to have to really dig into what are the impacts of all the various signings and then we're going to get into prepping for our almanac where we're going to try to project everyone for next season and we're all going to win our fantasy leagues you will hopefully with our help be like me and win your fantasy league next year and like brian usually uh but with that brian i think that's it right we're we're at the end of the show that's it we made it we made it and uh i can't wait to do it again yeah in a couple of weeks we'll be back uh in the meantime you can check out the pre-order for the almanac that we've been blabbing about the whole time keeping carlson.com slash almanac also we do have our patreon program going all throughout the summer and you could go to the site keeping carlson.com slash patron ignore any prices or anything just sign up as a patron for any amount that you want and we'll give you all our perks because we know during the summer obviously it's not as exciting of a time for fantasy hockey so we'd love to just have you aboard on our facebook group joining in on our conversations joining in on our player rankings which dave betton has been running has been a lot of fun uh so yeah keeping carlson com slash patron keeping carlson.com slash almanac thanks again to fantasy ref for helping us prep the show but i guess brian you'll get to them and everyone else when you read us the credits so let's cue the outro music and why don't you go ahead and do that this episode of the keeping carlson fantasy hockey podcast was presented by dauber hockey and powered by our patrons it was researched with help from well right off the top how about we mentioned fantasy ref whose rankings you can check out at fantasyref.ca slash rankings. I also follow on Twitter at fantasy underscore ref. There's also research with help from Dabber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Dabber Prospects, Natural Stat Trick, Involving Hockey, Cap Friendly, Hockey Reference, Hockey This, Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, Roto World, 
And I, I'll just say Yahoo. They've been good to us. They're a pretty good platform. I like using Yahoo a lot. I didn't actually use them for this episode, though. You could just put them on your list, and we're probably going to be doing the couple on Yahoo again next year. So we're open for alternative suggestions. But okay, Brian, great job, as always. Looking forward to talking to you again in a couple of weeks for our next episode, which will be back on Sunday. This one was on Monday, as you've noticed, and coming out on Tuesday because of the holiday weekend. Until then, keep on keeping Carl signed.